Whatever your definition of leadership is, I'm sure it encompasses the leader's responsibilities to make the best judgments they can about the future. For example, how long can we maintain this market position before our products and services become uncompetitive? Is our organization designed for a reality that no longer exists? Should we place a bet on automating this process, even if we can't quantify the immediate returns? As the world speeds up and evolves in unpredictable ways, the complexities of judgments leaders have to make is steadily rising. That's why on The Evolving Leader, we're so interested in how the latest breakthroughs in neuroscience and psychology are providing us with new insights into how we see, choose and solve problems. We believe that with radical self-awareness, we can make more informed choices about our future, both personally and professionally. As we understand more about how our brains make sense of reality, often in counterintuitive ways, we can then start to think about how we think and get a better sense of the factors at play that could otherwise deceive and distort our thinking and hinder us from achieving our goals. In this show, we're privileged to talk to one of the world's most distinguished scientists who has devoted his life to one of the biggest, most challenging questions we face. What is consciousness? It's a foundation stone, not just in neuroscience, but in psychology, philosophy and the arts, and it's fraught with controversy. After all, how can we study something with the tool itself without being compromised? Our guest today is Mark Solms, one of the world's leading neuroscientists, who has devoted his life to this question. His research has taken him and his team to a surprising source, not the evolved part of our brain responsible for memory, decision-making and creativity, but the ancient parts. His hypothesis is that the origins of consciousness stem from bodily feelings and the emotions seated in the brainstem. If he's right, the implications on the prevailing notions of what it is to be human are profound. Hey folks, welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show along with John Gomes. If you're new to our show, thanks for giving us a try. We're here because we believe that we need deeper, more committed leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges, and we take a multidisciplinary approach to this important conversation. So if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on your favorite platform and become part of the Evolving Leader movement. So let's get started with today's important conversation, first and foremost. John, my friend, how are you feeling today? I'm fizzing with energy, Scott. Uh, not least because of our remarkable guest, um, who I'm very grateful for finding time to talk to us, but also a sense of progress because I'm getting the vaccine on Saturday. I got the vaccine yesterday, my friend. Yeah. So how are you feeling then? I, I'm feeling a little sore, but I, that just means <laughs> it's working. So I'm glad. I was thinking back to our uh, our conversation with uh, the wonderful Ben Osborne um, and uh, just feeling a lot of gratitude yesterday for, for his work and everybody in the in the whole chain of events that went from uh, the science laboratory all the way to uh, being able to get that shot in my arm yesterday. So feeling really grateful, and I'm really excited for you that you're getting it this week. Um, and I'm also feeling uh, quite a bit of curiosity and an eagerness to speak with our guest today because we are joined by Professor Mark Soms, who has combined psychoanalytic insight into neuroscience. He is Director of Neuropsychology in the Neuroscience Institute of the University of Cape Town, 
and an honorary lecturer at the Royal London Hospital School of Medicine, among several other prestigious roles around the world. So, Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I got my uh, vaccination two and a half weeks ago. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Um, You had a very defining start in your quest to understand the mind, and it seemed to elicit a remarkable question in the young you. Can you start by explaining the question and how your early childhood experience formed it in you? Yes, um, I I think, uh, as it happens, I, I think that we underestimate children uh, altogether and that these sorts of questions, which I'm going to describe to you in a minute, I think many children ponder them. I think I might have uh, done so a little earlier uh, because of a, a, a family tragedy, um, which is that my, my older brother, uh, when I was four and he was six years old, uh, he fell uh, from a three-story building on, onto his head, uh, on his head onto the paving stones below. Uh, suffered a fractured skull and uh, an intracerebral hemorrhage, which required um, him to be uh, flown uh, by helicopter to uh, a a hospital, in in fact, in Cape Town, uh, which is where I'm now. And um, he came back uh, a few weeks later, um, recovered ostensibly in the sense that uh, he, he was walking and talking and looked the same. Um, apart from the fact that he had to wear a helmet to protect his skull. But uh, he was not the same person. I mean, he was radically changed uh, in his personality, in his mind. Um, You know, everything about uh, him was different, both emotionally and intellectually. So um, I, it was clearly uh, explained to me that this was a result of his brain injury so that is what brought me you know, directly into uh, contact with this profound mystery that how can my brother, the, the person, my, he was actually my best friend, you know, how can, he, where's he gone to? How can this have to do with damage to a part of his body? You know, so that is the question, you know, how come we are experiencing sentient subjective selves how come we are also a, a, a physical bodily organ? So, you know, I don't remember obviously exactly when these thoughts occurred to me, but in the ensuing weeks or months, um, you know, I, I, it dawned on me that I too, uh, if this, if, if my brother can, well, not quite disappear, but in a manner of speaking, disappear as a person, uh, as a result of damage to a, a part of his body, the, surely the same must apply to me. I too am somehow, you know, just my brain. And, uh, you know, one day when my brain dies, I will disappear. And uh, so, you know, all of these existential questions, which, as I said earlier, I think many children ponder much more than, 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 than we give them credit for. Uh, I, I was in this kind of rude awakening, uh, confronted by those questions very early on. And it's, um, I didn't decide there and then I'm going to become a neuroscientist. But what did happen was I fell into a, what can only be described as a depression. Um, I mean, for example, I remember vividly not being able to muster the energy to tie my shoelaces in the morning to go to school with the feeling, what's the point? What's the point of going to school? Um, and, and that's because uh, these, this, this sort of cascade of thoughts 
that flowed from what had happened to my brother, led me to this pass that there's no point in doing anything because we're all just going to disappear. Uh, no matter what you achieve and no matter how much you enjoy it, uh, you'll be gone. Um, uh, so you won't be able to enjoy it, you know, it's, uh, uh, and you'll never come back again. And so that ultimately led me to this thought that the only thing worth doing in those kind of nihilistic circumstances, the only thing that makes any sense is to try to understand what being is. What does it actually mean to be um, since we have such a brief time of, of, of doing so? And that's ultimately what led me to, 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 um, to, to take on the, the scientific life that I did. Thank you for sharing that uh, with us. That that's a that's a really emotional place to start for me to to listen to that story, and and it just gives me a lot of curiosity about what you've discovered. So I'm wondering if we can start, um, if you could lay out your hypothesis about the hard problem of consciousness. What is consciousness, and how do we produce it? What have you come to learn? Well, um, the hard problem, uh, as formulated famously by David Chalmers. Um, boils down to this, that all of the um, functions that our uh, cortex performs, things like vision and hearing and language and memory and so on, all of these things can go on without consciousness. Uh, so the, the normal way in which we explain uh, a, a, a physiological mechanism, you know, is, is, is to reduce it to its functional component parts, you know, how do you put this thing together? How do you make it do what it does? And you can do that with those functions that I've just enumerated, things like perception and memory and, and language and so on. Uh, you, can, you can provide a, fu a functional account of how they work without it necessarily having to include feeling like anything uh, because you can perform all those functions. In fact, not only does the human brain perform all of those functions perfectly well, without consciousness. Uh, so do computers. And so does your mobile phone have perceptual functions and memory functions and so on. So the hard problem is, um, how do we account for, and why indeed does it happen at all, that our brains feel like something, that when we perceive um, and remember um, and speak and so on, some of the time when we do that, it feels like something. Um, and uh, the, the question is a small version of the question is why, you know, a, a big version of the question is and how, because the mechanistic account um, doesn't explain why it feels like something. It doesn't need the feeling like something. And so this led to the very um, troubling conclusion, uh, or at least the, 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 the possibility that consciousness somehow exists outside of the normal causal matrix of things in the physical universe. That's the hard problem. Um, you know, why, to quote Chalmers, why doesn't all this information processing go on in the dark, free of any inner feel? So um, my starting point uh, is that the hard problem arose because we were looking in the wrong place uh, and, and accordingly looking uh, at the wrong mental functions precisely because cortical functions uh, can proceed perfectly well unconsciously. You can 
you can read with comprehension, you can recognize faces, you know, etc. Uh, these are higher cortical functions, precisely because those functions can carry on unconsciously in the dark. Uh, those are not the functions we should have studied in terms of trying to understand the neural correlates of consciousness. In trying to understand what the brain basis of consciousness is, we should be looking at functions which are intrinsically conscious, not at functions which can carry on unconsciously. And so uh, I, I focused instead on what is technically called affect, in other words, feelings, feelings like hunger and thirst and sleepiness, but also feelings like rage and fear and lust and so on. These feelings um, are not generated in the cortex. They're registered by the cortex. Uh, they arouse the cortex uh, and jolted into action. But the feelings themselves are generated in the brain stem uh, in a much more primitive, uh, primitive in the sense of ancient uh, in, in its evolutionary history. Um, the structures in question are probably 550 million years old, and we share them with fishes. You know, all vertebrates have these structures. I'm referring in particular to the reticular activating system and the closely adjacent periaqueductal gray. These brainstem structures are the source not only of affect, but also of all consciousness. In other words, cortical consciousness, the cognitive type of consciousness that we've been focusing on, is contingent upon brainstem arousal. And brainstem arousal is this thing that we call affect, raw feelings. Um, uh, to, just to illustrate what I mean by that, if you, <clears throat> if you damage, I don't say damage deliberately, but if it so happens that our brain stems are damaged uh, in the reticular activating system, the lesion need only be two cubic millimeters big. Now, I know in America, people don't think in terms of millimeters, but it's the size of a match head. A damage the size of a matched will, will predictably produce a coma in any human being if it's in that particular part of the reticular activating system. That's how condensed, how, how concentrated is the consciousness producing power uh, of that part of the brain. Conversely, you can remove large swathes of cortex uh, without, without uh, obliterating consciousness. And I describe such cases in my book. Uh, and, and it's even uh, possible to uh, demonstrate consciousness in children born without any cortex. Uh, these are the, this condition is known as hydranencephaly, not to be confused with hydrocephaly, which is a much milder condition. These are children whose craniums are filled out with cerebrospinal fluid instead of cortex. And they wake up in the morning, go to sleep at night, uh, some of them have absence seizures where they lose consciousness and then regain it. And you know, even their parents can tell when they're, when they're, they're, they're in such an absence state, as it's called, uh, and when they're back again. Uh, but much more interestingly than all of that, they show emotional reactivity. They respond emotionally and appropriately emotionally uh, to stimuli. So that, for example, um, if you tickle them, they giggle. Um, if you uh, give them a fright, they startle. Um, if you frustrate them, they arch their backs and cry, and so on. So without any cortex at all, um, affective consciousness, emotional feeling, a raw, uh, basic, elemental consciousness um, is present. 
um, and yet uh, just a tiny, tiny lesion the size of a match head in those brainstem structures obliterates it entirely. So uh, my, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, I think I might be over-elaborating my answer, no. but my, my essential point is that we've been looking in the wrong place. Cortex is not intrinsically conscious. It borrows its consciousness from the brainstem. Consciousness arises from the brainstem. Uh, these uh, nuclei uh, in the reticular activating system and periaqueductal gray, what they do is intrinsically conscious. It's the source of all consciousness. So surely if we're wanting to understand consciousness mechanistically, we should ask ourselves, what is the mechanism? Uh, what is the functional mechanism of these structures? Because what they do can't go on in the dark because what they do is they produce feelings. And who ever heard of a feeling that you don't feel? So feelings are intrinsically conscious mental states, unlike perceptions, memories, etc. So as I was reading that in, in your amazing book, I I had a number of kind of uh, highly subjective feelings about that in terms of it firstly registering at me at a very deep level of, of that feels true. You know, this idea that consciousness and feeling, and you make the distinction between the kind of higher emotions, which are interpretations from the from the prefrontal cortex with affect which is more of the bodily sensation. And I found that really interesting on, on lots of different levels because we have been schooled the opposite in things like um, you know, emotional intelligence for a long period of time. So it kind of uh, completely overturns kind of modern interpretations of what emotions are and what consciousness is. You talked about pulling apart objectivity and subjectivity, don't, so we don't see them as cause and effect. Uh, and therefore making our understanding of this con of consciousness harder. Can you just break that down a little bit uh, for the general reader? Let me just be sure that I'm understanding what you mean. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that our consciousness of objects, um, in other words, the representation of things out there in the world, um, this is a secondary form of consciousness. Uh, the, the, we can also represent things out there in the world unconsciously. That's why, for example, your, your mobile phone uh, can recognize a face, um, and why it can remember a phone number and so on. These kinds of cognitive processes representing things, um, these representations, as we call them in cognitive neuroscience, representations are not intrinsically conscious things. Uh, the, the, the way that we, the subject of the mind becomes aware of these objects. So these are the objects of our consciousness. They are represented in our consciousness, but they are not um, the fundamental stuff. The, 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 the consciousness itself is the feeling, uh, is the arousal. Uh, of the of the sentient subject, which so it's, it works something like if I can capture it in a phrase, I feel like this about that, um, yeah. and so the feeling gets extended onto our perception, and 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 in saying that, uh, it immediately leads us into what the fundamental purpose of consciousness is, which is to be able to bestow value on the world. In other words, I feel good or bad. Uh, about what's happening. I must avoid that thing. It feels bad. Uh, I, I, I must, uh, I must um, uh, approach this other thing because it feels good. Uh, the only reason that we, that we have feeling is to be able to make choices. And choices have to be grounded in a value system whereby one thing is better than another. Um, and so the feeling states 
uh, are those values, unpleasant feelings uh, versus pleasant feelings. I'm putting it now in its most elementary form. Of course, it's all much more elaborated than that as you go up the various stories of the mind. Um, and those feelings in turn reflect our most basic biological values, which is that it's good to survive and bad to die. So feelings tell you without you being able to or having to think about things. Uh, they tell you what's good for you and what's bad for you here and now. And on that basis, we make choices. And what I've just described to you is voluntary behavior. You know, so it, consciousness in the form of feeling raises our level of behavior above reflex and instinct. It, it, it raises us above automaticity where automatic reflexes and instincts only apply in predicted situations where there's a preordained algorithm of this is what one does in such a situation. By having feeling, we can navigate unpredicted novel environments and feel our way through them. Um, and in this way, make the choices which are, which are life-preserving. Uh, of course, when we speak of you know, the, the life-preserving goodness and badness, I, I, I must reiterate, I'm speaking about the absolute basic mechanism. It, that, it gets elaborated over, the, over component needs so that even at the bodily level, you know, it's, it's not just I must survive. In order to survive, I must eat, I must drink, I must sleep. And so each of these is a component need which has its own quality. So there's a particular kind of badness which, which, which qualifies hunger versus thirst versus sleepiness. Um, and then there are emotional values which are higher than these bodily ones. Uh, like, for example, fear um, uh, is I must avoid uh, uh, predatory attackers, um, uh, uh, separation distress. I must stay close to my caregiver um, if, if I'm a mammal. Mammals need to be looked after. Um, rage, you know, I must get rid of this frustrating impediment. So, uh, you know, what I was saying about basic survival values and goodness and badness, it slowly unfolds um, to, uh, over higher and higher levels until eventually it applies to cognition, you know, the, the good and bad judgment calls um, in relation to all of the great unpredictable complexities of our lives. But the basic principle uh, is this principle of feeling rooted in survival values. Um, and uh, but by starting with the objects of consciousness and the cortical processing and the uniquely human forms of it, you know, our model examples have been, we, just because of course we are humans, we want to understand consciousness. We take our own experience as the typical form. Um, and that made the problem very much harder for us than it needed to be. If you speak of the dawn of consciousness, you know, and its and its foundational forms, we're talking about something no more complex than an animal feeling too hot or an animal feeling thirsty. And when I say animal here, we, we're talking about very simple creatures, um, and and the mechanisms behind that are not that difficult to unpack. Uh, and and doing doing it that way from the bottom up therefore makes the hard problem less hard. And so if you take that example of like the, the emergence of affect and consciousness around it, I'm cold, I'm hot, I'm hungry. What, what, what you talk about is that that is effectively just managing homeostasis. That emotions or feeling state is the means to understand and be consciously aware of our body budget. 
Exactly. Now, that word that you've just uttered is the, uh, or, or if not the, certainly one of the most important uh, terms uh, in the consciousness science uh, of the future. If we're going to crack the hard problem, homeostasis is the, is the mechanism. Um, just in case uh, not everybody knows what homeostasis is, let me just quickly explain it. Uh, it is that we living things have to remain within certain physiological parameters. We can't just disperse ourselves across all possible temperatures, uh, etc. So uh, we have a core body temperature. We have to remain within that range. Um, if you move out of that range, that's an error signal. Uh, this is not where you expect to be. Um, and so you have to perform work to get back in that range again. Um, and we have many automatic homeostats, like blood pressure, for example, is regulated completely automatically. That's because it's a very simple business. There, you know, blood pressure is too low, change heart rate, change vasodilation, fixed, you know. Uh, but things, uh, 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 the more complex and, and, and less predictable things, um, as I was saying a few minutes ago, feeling allows us so that error signal is felt. It's an unpleasant feeling. Uh, and then it guides your behavior. You know, you're going the wrong way. If, you, if the feeling gets worse, you're going the right way if the feeling becomes pleasant. Uh, and then uh, your, you, the, the aim is to get back within that zone. That is the basic mechanism of feeling. Feeling is an extended form of homeostasis. And uh, as you can see from what I've just articulated, it's not exactly complicated. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the mechanism of homeostasis um, is, is relatively easily reduced to a set of equations. Um, and the, the thunderbolt that hit me uh, a few years ago as I was uh, uh, reaching the point that, that ultimately led me to write this book uh, was the realization that if feeling is just an extended form of homeostasis, which it certainly seems to be, um, then it must be possible to isolate its causal mechanisms and to reduce it to physical laws just like anything else uh, in nature. And so that's what I, what I set out uh, to, do, to do in this book. What's the relationship between the cognitive part of our brains making sense of the feeling and the part of the brain that's constructing the feeling learning whether or not its alarms were correct? In other words, some people have a tendency to be a little bit more jumpy or a little bit more nervous about things and they, they're kind of maybe over predicting threat or feeling like their environment's not safe, but, but then it's proven that that feeling was inaccurate. It was an inaccurate prediction, essentially. Does, does that part of our brain, is it good at learning or is it not good at learning? I said, I said a, a, a couple of minutes ago that the word homeostasis is central to uh, an understanding of consciousness, uh, uh, therefore affect and the brainstem. Um, the word you've just used, learning, uh, has everything to do with understanding the rest of it, uh, with what the forebrain and, and the cortex does and what cognition is for. Because um, what I've said to you so far it applies literally to fishes. You know, I mean, we can demonstrate uh, in experiments with zebra fishes that they, they, all the evidence suggests that they have feeling uh, in the sense that I've just described. For example, they show hedonic place preference behavior, as it's called, which means they hover around the part of the fish tank where the cocaine is or where the morphine is or where the nicotine is. These substances are not good for you, but they feel good. You know, and, and even zebra fishes uh, seem to like uh, imbibing these things. So, you know, uh, th these are very simple mechanisms. All that the fish knows um, 
and I should use scare quotes because it doesn't know anything. It just feels, you know, it just feels this is good, this is bad, um, but it doesn't have to learn anything. Uh, it doesn't have to uh, have any kind of cognitive. I'm not saying it doesn't have any. I'm just saying it doesn't have to, that level of the mechanism. But learning from the experience means that you now can predict. Um, I, if I want to have more cocaine, I better go top right part of the tank, uh, you know, and rather than just randomly, oh, this is nice, I'll stay here. You know, you can say, okay, I'll go and get some food on this side of the tank. But I remember that's where the other good stuff is, you know, so now I'll go there. This is what learning is for prediction. So uh, you, you just spoke about errors, you know, that I, I was mistaken to be anxious. Um, and, and learning is through, uh, you know, you, on the basis of, of, of past pleasures and unpleasures, in other words, mistakes and, 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 um, and good choices, uh, you, you, you learn, you lay down a prediction in future, that's what I must do. Then there's a further step, which is that, if your prediction proves to be wrong, you must update it. This is what learning is all about. And as we know, it happens throughout our lifetimes. So the whole of the cognitive apparatus um, is about learning, uh, but it's still rooted in homeostasis because it's learning about what must I do and what must I not do based on my previous experiences uh, in order to meet my needs. So you're not reinventing the wheel every day. That, that's what learning is all about. And uh, I, I want to emphasize in what I've been saying, something which is implicit, but really deserves to be made explicit, which is that memories are, of course, about the past, uh, but they are for the future. Uh, learning is for prediction. Uh, right. That's what it's all for. So this whole, uh, I mean, I'm very glad to be a human being and to have a cortex uh, 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 as large as, as we have, to be able to do all of this stuff in addition to raw feeling. I don't want for a moment to pretend that the whole of mental life can be reduced just to raw feeling and that that's all we need. All of this higher machinery that we have uh, greatly extends uh, the enormous adaptive advantage that feeling bestows on us. So how did you come to combine psychoanalysis and neuroscience? Well, um, I, I can answer that question in all sorts of ways, but let me link it to the beginning of my story. Um, I, uh, because I think that's the, the, probably the most true, uh, you know, none of us does anything for one reason, uh, mm -hmm. but I think that this is the, 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 the most basic reason why I did that. Um, we, we spoke earlier about my brother. Um, and he suffered a brain injury, which, which made life a hell of a lot harder for him than for me. And particularly academically, he really struggled to get through school. I, on the other hand, found it easy. Uh, and so every time I achieved anything uh, in that department, uh, it was a source of pain to my brother and uh, by implication to my family. Um, so I was really in a cleft stick um, as a kind of clever kid wanting to do well, um, that, that's, you know, sort of an ambition. Uh, and on the other hand, the guilt that I, that I felt uh, and the pain that I observed uh, every time that I did do well. So, so, I, so going into neuroscience, um, we've already discussed why I did it, and, and in particular why I was interested in consciousness. Um, you know, in the in the personhood of the of the brain, because it was the person of my brother that changed. Now, that was that was the thing that 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 started me off. But it was also two other things. 
And the one was that I wanted to help people like my brother. You know, it was, it was, that was my compromise. And I don't want to give the impression this was consciously decided. It wasn't. Uh, but but, but um, I, I think joining the dots in retrospect, it's pretty obvious uh, that why I became a neuroscientist and why doing purely academic um, mechanistic neuroscience was too much just the ambition being um, satisfied. It was too much just for me. Uh, I needed also to, to, to be helpful to my patients um, and to be able to, and to relate to them as people and to understand what was going on for them and to try and their families and, and all of that. And uh, I, I'm afraid at, at training in neuroscience, uh, even in neuropsychology, which is the mental aspect of brain function, it doesn't give you any of those uh, tools. There's no interest in those sorts of things. And in fact, and I'm being very frank when I say this, they sort of look down upon clinicians and therapists mm. and so on. You know, they're not proper scientists doing this sort of like really hard, uh, 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 interesting uh, intellectual stuff. But I, I, for my own personal uh, reasons that I've described to you, I felt um, frustrated and, and felt bad uh, I felt guilty, you know, even in my adult clinical, I mean, working with patients and not being able to do anything for them, just making diagnoses. Um, so th those were the sorts of reasons uh, I, I, why I became interested uh, in psychoanalysis. But it's not by any means the, the only reason, you know, it was also because cognitive neuroscience um, learning about the mechanisms of language and perception and all of these very interesting things uh, didn't actually explain anything about why my brother, you know, and people like him uh, are so changed as people. How does it really, uh, how does it happen that this, that this, the, that me, the sentient subjective experiencing mind, uh, you know, where does that fit into the whole equation? Uh, and in neuroscience, when I trained, I, I must say it's improved. It's improved by leaps and bounds. But when I trained in the early 1980s, you there was no such thing as a neuroscience of the self and of consciousness and of emotions uh, and so on. So the only game in town was taking seriously the subjective lived experience of mind. Uh, for all of its faults, and psychoanalysis has enormous shortcomings of its own, but at least they center stage, you know, the actual psyche, you know, uh, uh, as Oliver Sacks once famously said, neuropsychology is admirable, but it excludes the psyche. You know, neuropsychology excludes the psyche. That was exactly what I experienced. So to my professors and my colleagues' horror, um, I decided that I, I needed to supplement what I'd learned about the objective mechanisms uh, of the of the cognitive brain uh, with with the the, the the tools and the concepts methods um, of psychoanalysis and I and then it also enabled me to to be uh, able to help my patients um, and that but that's another another story. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. Given what you have learned about yourself and, and, and consciousness and being born out of feeling, what do you think the implications are for, for people, particularly leaders, trying to make predictions about the future? 
what would you say if you were sitting down with somebody who's taking responsibility for thousands of people about what they can learn about themselves in, through this lens? Well, um, you're asking two different questions there, and, and I will address the second part of the question. And if you want to, we can go back to the first part, which is, at least as I heard you, it was talking about the politics of science, uh, because there, there's a, a, you know, when you, when you try and um, go against the mainstream view that uh, the cortex is the seat of consciousness, and that is still very much the mainstream view, um, you know, it, it's not, it's the, 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 the ideal that we have in science, that we just follow the evidence, you know, is not actually the whole story. There, there's an enormous, uh, enormous um, uh, pressure, resistance, uh, and, and a whole sort of uh, machinery that, that resists uh, such, um, such uh, uh, findings, because they are findings, actually. This is not something I woke up one morning and thought, oh, that'll be a nice controversial theory. Let's throw that into the mix and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I followed, followed the, the evidence. Um, but that's a different story. This, the story you're asking about leadership, we know a hell of a lot about feelings and how they work. Um, and it's knowledge, you know, the, the, it's knowledge of a kind that um, we uh, neglect to our very great disadvantage. Um, it, for example, um, the fact that there isn't just such a thing as pleasure and unpleasure. You know, we speak of rewards like in neuromarketing, you know, that's rewarding and you know, et cetera. Well, you know, there are very many different types of reward in the brain. We're not just motivated by one thing. Um, and given, you know, just think about the implications of that, that there's not a single bottom line is what I'm saying in effect. Mm. Uh, knowing what the multiple bottom lines are uh, for the for the human organism uh, is, is not an unimportant thing. To know that we are motivated, you know, uh, sure, we, we know about, you know, all of these base emotions um, that, that uh, you know, that, that drive fear and greed and so on. But they are built into our brains, nurturant emotions, for example. All mammals, you know, have, have, have nurturant, not only nurturant inclinations, but nurturant needs. Um, these are pro-social emotions. We, uh, you don't need to teach anybody. You know, a baby cries, it feels bad. Uh, and, and, and you want to do something to make it better. Uh, to separate somebody from their, a little one from their parents, you know, it's a bad thing to do. You know, you don't need to learn that. Uh, it's it's our we 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 know from our own affective lives uh, what what these things are like uh, for others, and so empathy, you know, develops from these things. And 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 empathy, if I can just add one further pro-social emotion, it's play. Mammals need to play. Um, if you deprive a juvenile mammal of half an hour's play today, it will make it up by playing half an hour more tomorrow. And play is a, you know, again, it's a wonderful thing. And it's through play that you learn. In, in play, uh, it's all about negotiation. It's about reciprocity. You know, what's uh, we study play empirically, and we find uh, that despite kids loving. You say to any child, what's your favorite thing to do? They say, play. You know, you say, why? They say, because it's fun. Um, but when you empirically study play, the majority of play episodes end in tears. 
Um, and <laughs> yeah. so you study why does it, how does it go wrong? Uh, and you see it's about failures of reciprocity, failures of turn taking, not, not taking account of what's in it for my playmate. You play cops and robbers. You can't be the cop all the time and lock up your little brother. That's not a game. It's no fun for him. Why would he play that? So, you know, you have to take account of what's in it for the other um, in order to sustain the play episode, to sustain the fun. And so through play, which I reiterate is an inbuilt um, inclination in all, all, all mammals uh, indulge in rough and tumble play, just, just like human kids do. Uh, through this, we build social hierarchies uh, uh, which are viable. Uh, 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 ways of there is always a you know somebody's trying to dominate, uh, but if you do it too much, it doesn't work. Um, and so you know, the, knowing about these sorts of things in for for organisations, uh, for politicians, uh, for leadership generally, I think these are really important things uh, to understand. And I've said many things. I think I was trying to make two systematic points, but I ended up making gradations of points there. But I hope that that gives you some sense of why I think it, that it's important to understand that emotions are what drive us more than anything else, and that emotions are not fluffy, incomprehensible, irrational things, that there are laws governing how emotions work just like anything else, uh, and that if you get to understand those laws, you know, you, you, you see that much of how we behave uh, is, is not the best way to behave, that, that we, can, we can do things better based on, let me emphasize this point in, 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 in finishing my long answer to your question, based on millions of years of experience. You know, these are, these are this is an inherited um, wisdom. Uh, at least in its most rudimentary forms. It, 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 emotions are an inherited form of wisdom of what worked for all of our ancestors, which has got them to survive and to reproduce. I mean, take the example of fear of heights. Imagine what if each of us had to learn what happens by you know jumping off a cliff to see, well, let's try this one out and see if it's good <laughs> or bad. Uh, we just have it in us that you know, this is scary. And so, you know, generalize that to emotionality in general. And you see... You know, this, the, these are not disruptors, uh, feelings, emotions. The, these are not um, fluffy things which don't have any scientific basis. They are fundamental to survival. And, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of uh, in, uh, inherit. There's a, it's a great inheritance, a great legacy through the ages um, uh, represented by feelings. So the more that leaders get to grips with what we do know today about feeling, um, the better for them and for all of us. So let's stay with that just a moment longer, actually, because I'm, I'm, I'd like to get some sort of maybe even advice for leaders. Because you know, when we're working with leaders on ideation, innovation, how to make better decisions, how might a leader, you know, get a little bit more conscious of their consciousness? How do, how might they understand how their feelings and affects might be tied up in their judgment and decision making? And what is some like practical advice you might give uh, to somebody listening and thinking about that right now? Okay, so I'm going to reduce things to, to basics, uh, 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 but um, you know I, I don't want to leave you with the impression that that the, the basic emotions that I'm talking about are the whole story. We, the, 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 yeah. the, I know you had Lisa Feldman Barrett on your um, uh, program, uh, uh, and she speaks much more about the higher elaborations of these things, and she's very nervous about people like me who speak only about the basics. 
Um, uh, and she's right, you know, these, the, 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 the basic natural kinds um, are just the ground floor and they, they're not nearly enough to explain the socialized, complex, uh, uh, constructed emotions uh, that, 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 that I wouldn't be able to give a simple answer like this mm. to. Uh, so if you go down to the basics, um, you know, we have fundamental emotional needs and they are needs. And I, let me reiterate what I mean by that. I mean, for example, fear. You know, you need to escape danger. Yeah, this, is, this is not a nice to have. Um, rage, likewise, you have to fight for your share. If you don't think about it on the average, uh, those who don't fight for their share, they're wiped off the table. So, you know, these are needs. We need these things. Um, to have a knowledge of what the basic emotional needs are, um, is therefore important. Um, and to that, that kind of emotional literacy, I'm speaking about things as fundamental as that, to know, well, what are the basic emotional needs of a human being, of, my, of mine and of my employees and of my customers and of my et cetera, et cetera. Um, just that alone uh, is, 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 is really an important practical tip to give you. Learn what the emotional needs of, of, of human beings are. Um, and then secondly, learn how to recognize them, you know, to because many of these natural kinds, uh, we don't normally think, uh, we, we, we do recognize things like fear and rage, you know, we all know what those are. But, you know, look at what I just told you about play. We're not used to noticing, hey, this person doesn't know how to play. Um, you know, this person's uh, bad in, in terms of their nurturance um, needs, etc. So just learning to recognize those feelings. Then this is one of the most important ways in which I can answer your question. If somebody suffers a feeling, in other words, they're always pissed off uh, or, they're, or they're always anxious, it means whatever they're doing to meet that emotional need isn't working. It's as simple as that. They've learned a way of dealing with that need uh, which, which doesn't succeed in its, in its, in its goal. Uh, so uh, you can think about this in relation to your own beloved self. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling panicky. Uh, what does that mean? It means I'm trying to do something to prevent a separation and a loss, which is what panic means. Uh, and whatever I'm doing doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, it enables you to identify ways in which you're behaving, um, which are non-optimal. Uh, and uh, it's not easy always to recognize it in yourself, which is why we have things like therapists that, who, are, who are trained uh, in helping you to see uh, your emotions. But, but ultimately what it comes down to is feelings are error signals, to go back to what we were saying at the beginning about homeostasis. It, it means, you know, your prediction as to how to meet this need uh, doesn't succeed. That prediction needs updating. Um, so, you know, th th these are some practical tips, remembering that there's a range of them, uh, you know, so you need to recognize the feelings. And then it's not just a matter of labeling them. It's a, it's a, it's a question of, well, what is the person doing um, that is, and, and it can be yourself, what is the person doing that is meant to meet that need that isn't working? And, you know, once you, once you start thinking like that, uh, you, 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 you have, you're, you're taking these, these things into your own hands. And I want to add one further point. I know this is not quite what you're asking about, but I want to make this point. Feelings, uh, because they mean something, they mean this person's, this need is not being met, this emotional need is not being met because they're doing something which doesn't work. In other words, it's causing, what they're doing is causing 
uh, them to suffer th this feeling or for those around them to suffer their feelings. Um, that to change what they're doing, uh, it's, it's, I mean, this is an absolute bedrock uh, of, of, uh, of, of our lives, you know, that we have to learn how to meet our emotional needs. And if we're not doing it, we've got to do something differently. You know, that, that will change. Uh, as opposed to taking a drug, that's the point I wanted to add. Drugs, um, which is the you know the the way in which psychiatry generally is is practiced, uh, you know, is treating the symptom. It's 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 damping down the feeling, and thank God for that. You know, because I mean, you know, who wants to suffer if if you don't have to, and if you can have such a quick and easy fix, uh, why not? And there are many patients where that's the only thing. Um, that you can do, and it's sometimes in emergencies, you know, it's the only thing that you should do is treat the, uh, the 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 patient symptomatically. But I think it's a really important point that uh, that just suppressing feelings by way of drugs, whether they be medical treatments or illicit drugs, which is people treating themselves uh, by changing the feelings directly through chemical substances, is not the right way uh, to to deal with mental health. Um, and organizational health and so on, to, to go back to the question that, that you were We need to look at what's causing this feeling and change that. Mark, we're, we're particularly interested in how you develop a greater sense of self-awareness. And yep. that's, a, that's a catch-all for you know, so much. And I don't know how to frame this question because I, I was trying to understand in your, your book about you know, the point you were making around how hard it is scientifically to get an understanding of what first and third person perspectives are. Can you talk a little bit about that and where you, where you have come to, to kind of get a greater understanding of that? I suppose the, the most um, important thing to say in response to, to that question is that um, the only thing in the known universe that has a first-person perspective is the human brain. I don't believe it is the only thing. I believe that many other brains also have it. So let's, let's say we only know it about our own brains, but all the evidence suggests it applies to pretty, lot, uh, pretty many other animals too. But nevertheless, it's just the brain. Uh, the brain is the only thing that we know that has a first-person point of view. Um, and yet the methods that we've used to study it um, not only ignore um, the first-person data, but are positively embarrassed by the first-person data. You know, proper science is third-person. Um, it is, you know, it's externally observable, um, um, uh, experimentally tractable um, uh, things. Um, and uh, that's true. I mean, that's great. We made enormous advances in neuroscience with the development of all of the technologies that we have today for, for en enhancing our third-person perspectives, extending what we can see literally, you know, um, through these, these methods. But if the brain has this unique property that it also feels like something, uh, from the first-person point of view, uh, uh, surely this is there for a reason. You know, surely, surely uh, this unique property does something, uh, and if that is so, then surely we're going to be we're going to be led down some some um, dead ends. You know, if we if we don't take account uh, of the first person perspective, um, we, we, we we're leaving out half the data. We're leaving out the part of the data that is most uniquely explanatory of what brains do. 
as opposed to other organs and, and other things. So for all of its difficulties, I mean, I, I think that um, the, the doing first-person science is obviously really hard. Uh, but I don't think that the way that we should do science is to say, well, we, we're going to leave out the hard parts. You know, uh, that when it comes to the science of the brain, uh, which, which is the same thing as to say the science of the mind, uh, you need to adapt your methods to the, the object of study. The thing that you're studying, if it has subjectivity, sorry, it makes it hard, but you've got to, you've got to, you've got to incorporate that into what you're doing. So that, that in essence, uh, would be my, my, my answer to that question. And, uh, the, you know, you asked me earlier, why did I train as a psychoanalyst? You know, it's uh, despite all of the, um, all of the prejudice that that brought uh, upon my head uh, from my colleagues, you know, thinking that, Mark Solms, who used to be an astronomer, has now become an astrologer. You know, was sort of the <laughs> the, uh, the 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 tenor uh, of of the of the reaction. Uh, it it's you know it's, that that was why I, I uh, one of you know to, to elaborate my earlier answers. That was why I wanted to master these techniques, these theories, which try to conceptualize subjectivity, and then you know not go into some parallel universe, but then bring that into neuroscience and say, okay, well, these two perspectives, you know, when I wake up in the morning with my eyes closed and I feel myself to be Mark Solms, that's my mind. I then stagger over to the bathroom mirror and see this body looking at me. That's also Mark Solms. You know, these are just two perspectives on the same thing. They're not two of us, you know, so these two perspectives must be, must be reconciled with each other. And then we'll have a truly neuropsychological understanding of this incredible organ. That's brilliant. Um, so when you think about the next 10 years, sort of considering the current thinking and the research on consciousness, what do you, what do you think the next 10 years will uncover? Um, well, uh, let me pick up what I was saying earlier when I was speaking about homeostasis. Uh, I, I was saying that the brainstem nuclei that generate feeling uh, are homeostatic nuclei. We can physiologically, mechanistically explain what those nuclei do. And I did some work with a computational neuroscientist named Carl Friston, where we literally reduced to a set of equations um, how those brainstem nuclei operate, the ones that generate raw feelings. Um, now, uh, uh, that was sort of, that's where I left off uh, in the earlier part of our discussion. Now, if that really is the case, if we have isolated the causal mechanisms whereby feelings are generated, um, then, um, hold your breath for a moment, then uh, we should be able to engineer it. That is the implication. Uh, and in fact, I would go so far as to say, if you cannot engineer an artificial consciousness of the rudimentary kind that I'm talking about, if you cannot engineer that, then you haven't cracked the problem. You haven't found the causal mechanism because, in fact, it was Richard Feynman, a famous physicist, said, "If if you can't build it, you don't understand it." So uh, the I think uh, if the, the the those of us who are working and we are a minority, I mean, I really uh, need to uh, concede that point. My approach to consciousness is far from being the mainstream approach, um, I, and I have not yet won over a good many of my colleagues, really influential colleagues. And happily, uh, there's, a, there's a growing number of us uh, and influential ones among us uh, who, who are persuaded by the evidence. 
but if we do uh, win the day, uh, if it is uh, accepted uh, that that the, the fundamental form of consciousness is raw feeling and that it obeys these very simple mechanistic rules, um, then we should be able to engineer it. And I think that is the single biggest thing on the horizon, the possibility of an artificial consciousness. Saying that, I mean, I myself feel as if I'm a nutter when I say that, you know, because just a few years ago, would have, you know, if somebody saying we're going to engineer consciousness, I'd say, yeah, yeah, what are you smoking? This, this sounds like uh, the rise of the machines kind of idea, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for that reason, I want to um, uh, supplement what I've just said by um, acknowledging the enormous ethical problems that that, um, mm. that that brings upon our heads, if you'll excuse the pun. Um, but we're, we're busy working on that at the moment, on trying to, on testing uh, the, 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 the veracity of the causal mechanisms we've identified in, in the brain stem by trying to artificially engineer them. And, uh, and uh, if, if, if our uh, uh, predictions are confirmed uh, in terms of what we expect, um, then I think uh, we have to stop uh, and collectively take stock um, of what are we doing, why are we doing this, what, what's, what sort of regulation should there be. Of, but we're not there yet. Um, but I just want to make clear that I'm very mindful of what kinds of dangers there potentially are if we are on the right track. And so it's not just when you ask about the, the future direction, there's very exciting scientific prospects um, and there are also some rather scary ones. I want to add yeah. one further point, which is that I think it's also really important for the future of uh, if these arguments are correct, uh, to recognize the, the, the um, untenability of our human exceptionalism. Uh, I think that to recognize that we are just creatures, uh, that other creatures have, at least other mammals, have basically the same fundamental values as us, same emotional needs as us. And these, when I speak of mammals, you know, we're talking about animals which feature prominently on Western menus, you know, which are industrially uh, slaughtered and, and, and mm. bred for slaughter and so on. I think that there also are implications in that direction. Um, of this line of, um, of of neuroscience. So as you look at your, I don't know, six, seven, ten-year-old self back and the the world as you saw it there, and that question of, um, you know, when 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 your brain dies, you die. How 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 do you feel differently now about about the the, the sense of consciousness? What's the big, sh you know, if you were going to describe it to your ten-year-old self, what would you say the journey that you've been on? Yeah, it's um, gosh, that's a such a profound question. But but I will say that what motivated me um, as a as a little kid, part of what motivated me um, was, you know, I wanted to, I needed to understand what conscious being is, uh, which means you have to somehow transcend being and see it from the outside. You know, you need to get some kind of um, get out of the solipsistic bubble of just experiencing and to try to explain in terms other than itself what experience is and how it works. Um, and uh, I, I think that I, at least to my satisfaction, I have, uh, I, I think I've got a clue now, you know, as to how it works. Um, part of the motivation as a child was, was the sort of slender hope 
that if we can understand what being is, then maybe we can also transcend its confines, not only in terms of um, the, 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 the envelope of experience that we can't escape because we're trapped in it, uh, but also its confines in terms of mortality. I had the. I, I, I have to confess. I think I was thinking, if if we can understand, you know, how to make consciousness, you know, then then maybe you can become immortal. Uh, and that's crazy. Of course, it's crazy. But um, I, I feel that we do understand now um, something of what sentience is and how it comes into being in terms of um, forces and mechanisms other than itself. Things, that, in other words, that existed in the physical universe before the dawn of consciousness, uh, which gave rise to consciousness. Um, but, I, but I will um, end with some reference to this, this crazy question, this, this crazy making anxiety about mortality. And to say that I, um, it is, it is even today uh, in 2021 uh, feasible uh, on the basis of various uh, developments in recent years that in principle, it should be possible to download um, the informational content of an expansive cortex. In other words, to store that information. And uh, that, that, that always struck me um, when when these uh, developments uh, were unfolding uh, in uh, recent years, it struck me as no, there was no solace in that because, you know, it's just information. It's not me. Uh, so once we start understanding what the mechanisms are whereby you ignite the, that information with feeling, um, really weird possibilities uh, open up. I don't know how to get my head around that entirely, but I, I just, maybe this is just an old man's version of the same childish fantasy that maybe, maybe, you know, there's some way in which we can escape that confine too. But I do feel like that maybe, maybe there's some way in which we can. The, the, the crucial question there becomes if you can engineer an artificial feeling, uh, it's still not yours. So there will be something that will feel its way into your memories, um, but it won't be you. That, that, that's, that's sort of the, the, the point. So if I was to talk to a kid today about those questions that, that, that so exercised me as a kid, um, I would be saying things like that, what I've just said to you. This time has been absolutely incredible, and we yeah. thoroughly recommend The Hidden Spring um, to our listeners um, as a – a primer, really, for the, the 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 next decade in terms of rethinking consciousness. So, Mark, thank you so much for thank you. for spending time with us. Thank you very much. I've I've, I've enjoyed it. The, the measure of how much one enjoys a conversation is how quickly it whizzes by. Mm. I'm, I'm shocked to see that we've had an hour. <laughs> no, as am I. Yeah, yeah. thank you. It's uh, man, you've given us so much to think about. Really appreciate it. And as always, remember, the world is evolving. Are you?